2: Hello and welcome to Second Opinion with me, Dr Christian. This is your weekly podcast prescription, the only dose of anything that you'll ever need to give you all the knowledge and health and happiness. Is that over-exaggeration, Alex? What do you think? No, I
1: think health and happiness. Is that pushing it? Can I get away with it?
2: I am duty-bound to say that um, if you feel unwell at any point during this podcast, don't carry on listening. Make contact with a doctor, either by dialing NHS 111, consulting your GP, or visiting your local hospital. Right. That's the legal bit done. Let's move seamlessly on with the show. Alex, forceps, retractor. Good Thank you. Um, as always, I am joined by Alex Stanger. That's the voice you hear. How are you, Alex? What I'm news? very
1: well indeed. I was a little bit asleep when you were doing the intro. I was sort of like dreaming about something else. And um, now I'm in who, the room. Who were you I dreaming am here about? I'm in the room. Are you back with us? I was actually thinking, <laughs> yeah, I'm back. I'm all right. Back. You're not going to say I'm what not going to say. No, no, I'm definitely
2: right. not going to say. And. This week on Second Opinion, I've very particularly wanted to talk about HIV. Um, we haven't done it yet, have we? And no. it's high time that we did. And so my guest for today, I'm really happy to say, is Chief Exec of the Terence Higgins Trust, Ian Green. Ian, how are you?
3: I'm good, thank you, Chris. Welcome. It's nice to be here.
2: Thank you for agreeing to come. I know you're a very busy man. You've now got the HIV Commission
3: as well. We do. That's a, a national independent commission uh, that is focused on how we can end new HIV transmissions in the UK. Because uh, we think we've got all of the tools in the toolbox to make it happen. But what we need is some fresh thinking to think how they might all come together to make that a reality. Who'd have thought we could be thinking now about the possibility of ending new HIV transmission?
2: I remember doing talks for you guys for THT at various fundraisers and and saying exactly that and, and, and thinking what a profound thing to be able to stand here. Yeah. You know, and say to a group of people that there should be no more new HIV transmissions, it's perfectly possible. It sort of sent little little shivers down my spine as I said that. Mm. But were you aware of that, Alex?
1: No, I wasn't aware of that at all. Um, so I'm a child of the 80s. Yep. And of course, that was when we had those, those adverts mm. that were uh, horrific. And to think that in a relatively short space of time that we're in this position, that must be... That's pretty incredible. Is that quite, is it as incredible as oh, one thing? Oh, yeah.
3: I mean, I, I remember those adverts. I mean, as it was well. doom.
1: I and mean, we were all going, we were all on that train, and yeah. we were going to hit, be hit by that iceberg, weren't we?
3: Yeah, the tombstone cr- yeah. crashing down, then mm. a bunch of lilies get thrown onto the top of the tombstone. And uh, I mean, for the time, it was a really powerful, impactful. Public information and awareness. Scared the crap uh, out of us, let's be honest, didn't it? Scared the crap it? out of everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, and the challenge with that is for many people, that's still their narrative. You know, they haven't got up to date information about how things have changed so radically, so dramatically uh, in the last 30 years, where we can now say that somebody who's diagnosed with HIV today, if they get onto treatment, uh, they can have a normal life expectancy. But also really importantly, if somebody has an undetectable viral load, that means the amount of the virus in their blood can't be detected. It's impossible for them to transmit the virus to their sexual partners. And so that's amazing news. We're doing our very best to try and get that information out there. But the challenge is that many people's narrative is stuck back in the 1980s.
1: It is. You say that. However, I um, was talking to a younger person than myself. Um, She was in her 20s, and I don't know how we got onto it, but we got onto condoms and sexually transmitted diseases. And she said, oh, we don't even worry about that. And Mm. I was absolutely gobsmacked Mm. because when I was single um, and you'd maybe mm-hmm. meet someone and when uh, mummy, daddy, oh, you know, I'm getting a bit coy, but you know, when, Listener, I, when, I, put it, when, when blushing, I put it about yeah. a bit, you know, that yeah. you wouldn't even think about, you would not think about having sex without a condom because you were so terrified. Yeah. Now, is that a generational thing that, because I, I was absolutely gobsmacked that she, she said, I said, what about HIV in a really mm. panicked tone? And she said, I don't even think about that. Yeah. What, what, why would I think about that?
3: Do you know, it's one of the things that I I, I am constantly reminded of in the role that I do, is when I was growing up, condom use was something that was ingrained into you, we now do lots of work with young people and it's very similar to what you're saying is that very few young people would automatically think mm. uh, about the importance of condom use but also they wouldn't link that at all to HIV. Other STIs maybe, uh, but not to HIV and so many people's mind minds HIV is a thing of the past and what we need to remind people of is that whilst we believe we can get to zero new HIV transmissions there are still over 4,500 people a year who are diagnosed with HIV and many of those are young people so you know it hasn't gone away um, Mm. and that's so important that we've got opportunities like this to make people aware uh, of what the current situation is with HIV but also um, how things have changed and actually we can be hopeful and optimistic
2: And Ian you are, I mean you yourself are HIV positive and you've talked about this before haven't you Yeah.
3: When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed in 1996 I've been living with HIV for 23 years now and um, when I was diagnosed I thought I'm it was like having a rug pulled from under uh, my feet um, and I thought at that point in time perhaps I might have eight ate- Years le- left to live um, antiretroviral therapy, the drugs that you take to treat hiv um, weren't were just becoming available, um, but the side effects for them were pretty awful at that point in time and so I was planning for death at that point in time and i 'd seen many of my my friends uh, die uh, and die quite horribly, um, and so the it was quite A a real impact uh, on anyone's life to have that positive diagnosis, Mm. and still is today. Were you you diagnosed early or late? Do you know? Uh, I was diagnosed really early. I had a seroconversion illness. That's when you get HIV. Your the immune system reacts, Uh, and so I felt really rough for a couple of weeks. Uh, And so within. Uh, three months of that seroconversion illness uh, I was diagnosed by my GP actually so uh, not in a such quite an unusual day, very unusual <laughs> yeah so uh, uh, and yeah. how
1: old were you at the time
3: I was uh, 31 right. 31, 32 and
1: then does it I mean I imagine that, that that diagnosis not only for you mentally and thinking god I've got this death sentence ahead of mm. me but it would affect your relationships as well or the thought of going into relationships I mean how did it affect you
3: uh, it impacts every area of your life probably mm. Um, certainly did for me. Then uh, the first thing I had to think through is who was I going to tell? Uh, I have very good, close uh, network of friends, uh, and they were incredibly supportive. My GP was actually a friend, and so uh, he told me the, the, that I had the HIV positive diagnosis, diagnosis, and was incredibly uh, supportive and caring. Um, The hardest thing was telling my parents. That was just a shocker. Um, And just to see uh, how they were really just concerned about me. I was worried that they were going to react in a really negative way. They were incredible but to see the pain on their face, as I, I told them about uh, the fact that I was living with HIV. And then it was about, do I tell work? Mm. Do I tell, you know, when I'm getting into new relationships, at what stage do you have that conversation with somebody you want to have sex with uh, about the fact that you're HIV positive? I mean, it's so complicated and it meshes into all sorts of different areas of your life. And so the impact was huge. Uh, Things have got much easier since then Uh, and I'm I'm very open about my status but um, I can understand how people still are reluctant to share their status and I faced stigma and discrimination often in a medical setting I've got to say Um, Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's still something that's very real and very relevant. So
2: one of the reasons I went into sexual health and HIV as a doctor was, this will sound slightly crass, but bear with me, is, is first of all, it was a new and exciting disease. I'm, I'm aware of how crass that sounds, but, you know, it, it's very, It's not eczema or asthma and things like this. This mm. was a new thing that you could follow the research. I could relate to the patients. Uh, they were from my same demographic usually, and I could converse with them and, you know, mm. hopefully you know, do some good for them and put them at ease, not make them feel alienated, which so many of my colleagues mm. did. And I remember being on a ward round actually um, as a medical student and it was, at, it was at UCL and there's a whole floor there for inpatients with AIDS as it was called at that time. And I remember none of us going anywhere near the patients, And it, it's a thing of profound shame for me now actually that we would all stand gowned, masked, end of the bed as far away as possible yeah. and talk to this poor chap in the bed. And it, yeah. it makes me... Shudder with, with, with utter shame now, but I we didn't know, you know, we didn't know. And I wanted to talk about sort of milestones in, in, in changing that. And, and for me, there were two really, really important things. There was Diana, mm. you know, and however staged and produced it may have been or whatever her motives might have been. Nevertheless, she sat on the bed, she shook hands with, she hugged people with AIDS. And that really sort of shamed all us doctors who wouldn't go near for a start and really started to change things, didn't it?
3: She had a profound impact. I mean, the London Lighthouse, which was then part of Terence Higgins Trust, she uh, used to go in and visit privately. Um, she they used to the staff used to get a telephone call um, from the palace to say she 'd like to pop in normally sort of late in the evening mm. she would her car would be parked round the side she 'd be brought in a sort of a, a, a back door um, and she 'd just spend hours chatting to um, uh, people in the uh, inpatient area of the the london lighthouse uh, and for many of them uh, that was um, something that was easing their final few days and months of their life um some of them were ostracized from their family Mm. um many of them were really scared and worried and to have somebody like princess diana to show that she cared not only publicly but also privately um that had a massive impact um and the the shaking of the hand the hugging um that the speaking out the advocacy was so important and she did a huge amount and uh you know, I know that she would have carried on that work had she not died so tragically.
2: But well, I think it's interesting so that her son, actually, Harry, has a similar impact, I think. So Harry, on 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 YouTube, or on... Where was on it? On YouTube, yeah. On, on YouTube, you know, did a, an HIV test live on or, camera. On Facebook. He was on Facebook. On Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... No member of Rod has ever done anything like that, ever, I don't think, have they? And that was, again, sort of... One doesn't want to say following his mother's shoes because it's such a boring old cliche, but it was a... Again, as profound a, a, a thing to do, I think, a gesture uh, to change opinion and to try and encourage openness and discussion and testing that, that I've ever seen. Did I just mo- wish it had been me doing it with him. Well, <laughs> it did,
3: yeah, I mean, and it did more to normalize HIV testing uh, than anything else. Mm. I mean, when, when he took that test, um, we, we knew that was going to happen a few days in advance. Um, and we saw a 500% increase in people ordering self-testing kits on our Website over that, the sort of the two and three day period after he took the test. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that is so important about ending new HIV transmissions uh, is to normalize HIV testing and encourage more people to get tested. It's so easy to get tested now, mm. you can get tested. You know, in a in sexual health, health clinic, through your GP. Um, you can do your own test at home um, and you have the results immediately or you can send the blood back to a lab. So there's so many different ways. You can be tested in a community setting, uh, at sports clubs and community centres, in church settings. HIV testing is accessible anywhere, but we need to make sure that people... Uh, feel that they're confident and comfortable to get tested. Um, and one of the things that is holding people back is the stigma that's still associated with HIV. I
1: was going to ask, Is there, do you still think there is a stigma associated with it? Because we all thought it was from you being... I don't know, oh, it's the usual, the shame, the shame of having sex, I suppose, or yeah. the shame of... Well, my favourite subject, shame, it's isn't it? Shame, yeah. So it, it, is there still a stigma, do you think, attached to HIV?
3: I think it's probably one of the most stigmatised health conditions that there has ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a huge amount of stigma uh, associated with people living with HIV. We did um, uh, a piece of research a couple of years ago now uh, around um, growing old with HIV. Um, and so the, who'd have thought actually, People will be grown old with HIV, which is mm. fantastic news. Uh, but now people are beginning to have to chart the sort of the whole issue of getting into residential care when they're getting older, um, and uh, people living with HIV have some particular challenges there and We heard a story of a uh, of a, a care home not far from uh, West London uh, where um, a, a woman living with HIV was discouraged from leaving her room. If she uh, did leave her room, she was encouraged to sit just in one seat. And when she used the television remote control, they came and wiped it with an antiseptic wipe. And that was just in 2017. Um, I I had a carpal tunnel operation uh, on my wrist a couple of years ago um, and always talked to the nurse about my HIV status. um, And I had to have some blood taken. I looked at the form as I was wandering off to phlebotomy. And suddenly I noticed on it she'd stamped high risk on my, um, uh, my, the form. Um, and I was so shocked I didn't even challenge it at that point in time and uh, I should have done. Going to the dentist, uh, the, there's still stories of people that uh, the dentist will only see people at the end of the day um, and will come out dressed like a spaceman still yeah. and will often wrap their equipment in cling film. Um, and so there is stigma that people face uh, in relationships, uh, in employment uh in uh from families unfortunately still but also in a healthcare setting so stigma is still probably the biggest barrier um stopping people from getting tested for hiv
2: it can be an internalized stigma as well i talk a lot about sort of internalized homophobia in in say gay men who and i and they do have a double whammy there's first i'm gay and i have to come out and then there's I have HIV and I have to come out about that as well, or I'm forced to come out, you know, by various organisations. I think it's very important to remember that HIV can affect anyone, you know, all demographics. And I, as a doctor, have diagnosed it so many times in heterosexual men and women and diagnosed it late. They've, you know, really shockingly, actually, they've seen a lot of people, including specialists, and no one's really known what's wrong with them. And they've come into my surgery... You know, And within 10 seconds, you know exactly what's wrong with them, only just because it's, my, it's always in the back of my mind. And I think it's not in the back. But to forget that actually as a heterosexual man or woman, you are not as much as risk, but at, still at risk is really important. And, and I think they're the ones who really get missed,
3: aren't they, these days? They, they, they are. I mean, gay men, men who have sex with men, um, that... Uh, there, there is uh, Certainly with gay men, there is a good culture of HIV testing. Not with everybody, but with with many. Um, the other largest group that is impacted in the UK is uh, people from the black African community. Uh, and again, a lot of, of work has been done over the course of the last couple of years um, to make sure that testing is targeted at that group as well. And the stigma in that particular a group is, is huge. Isn't uh, it? And, and your messaging needs to be so different mm. from the other demographic of gay men to often a very conservative group of, of, of people and so using faith leaders is really important about uh, them encouraging people to get tested. I mean, we I would always say to people, um, do you know your status? Do you know your status? And it's something that perhaps is really important that we all have a responsibility to be aware of.
1: Would you, in a perfect world, like to see them mandatory, a
3: test? Uh, I, I don't think, ma- I, I don't like mandatory anything, okay. to be honest. Right. Um, uh, I, I think that... It needs to. People need to be absolutely comfortable and confident about getting tested, um, and so and and, and there, the, if somebody is sexually active, I would encourage somebody to have a HIV test. I mean, they can order a self test kit. Um, Uh, at a cheap rate on Terence Wiggins Trust's website today Uh, and it's really easy and really straightforward Um, and for the vast majority of people that will just be reassuring to them. Um, But if somebody is HIV positive, the sooner they get into treatment, the better their outcome in terms of their their longevity and their their health. But really importantly, they need to get onto treatment to get an undetectable viral load so they can't transmit the virus on and that's one of the reasons we're going to, one of the ways that we're going to end new HIV transmission.
1: Do you have to disclose that you're HIV positive to an employer? No. Right.
3: Or insurance? Or insurance.
2: Or
1: insurance?
3: No, no not anymore.
2: Quarter, I'm quite actually.
1: surprised by that, I, but I'm, I'm pleased about it. That's one
2: of the many myths. I'm but glad you asked that, that. That I think people still worry about, and is, and probably def, you know puts them off getting tested. Actually, so is when that, did that all change then?
3: Oh, about uh, in terms of the employer, you've never had to disclose to an employer. there have been some uh, some some errors in terms of being a, med, a, a clinical. Uh, I, I guess I don't know whether doctors still do need to. We we'll use this rather care. unfortunate phrase: hands
2: inside cavities. That's right. That's if that's you right. put your hands into body cavities for a job, never mind your private life, but for a job um then you ought to disclose it because potentially there is a risk again that will probably change because well, that risk is, is is now minimal the chief it?
3: medical officer who re- uh, um, stepped down recently that she um uh, uh, announced uh, a couple of years ago that there's actually no reason anymore no, no if really. somebody is on treatment with an undetectable viral load because of the risk of transmission is zero so but but there, there is still that i guess a some will feel an obligation on clinicians. I suspect it's do more that. to keep
2: patients feeling comfortable than it is. But that's not a reason actually, because I think that spreads misinformation. Still, it doesn't correct an incorrect perception. Yeah. You
3: know, the the only challenge with insurance is that you don't have to declare, but it can be quite challenging to get life insurance still. Um, and that's something that we still need to campaign over. Um, and that's. Uh, a, a, a real issue for for many people uh, they can get um, uh, insurance but the premiums are much much higher um, and there's some really good lgbt uh, insurance companies who are passionate about getting that message out there to challenge the industry
1: when was uh, uh, and sorry this is going back to really earlier on when was the change when did hiv become something that wasn't the death sentence that we all thought it was going to be
3: Started in 1996 when antiretroviral therapy was uh, started to become available, um, and that's when you started to see people who were ill. It's actually, it was almost Lazarus-like for some people mm. that they'd been very, very sick, and suddenly they started antiretroviral therapy and they started to get better. Um, you could
2: walk down the street and spot people with HIV in those could. days. Now. I absolutely cannot, yeah. you know. That's, yeah. You can't play the game of diagnose people on the tube anymore. Well, not for HIV, for other things, but yeah. not for that. And that's yeah. that's extraordinary, actually. Yeah. And so quickly, in so terms quickly. of research, so yes, quickly. Yes, it does seem
1: like a very quick thing. Like, when we talk about so many different things on this podcast, mm. this it feels like this is one that... Was I don't want to say cracked, but it was it was one that seems to have it was so developed very quickly. I think you know yeah, we got so Liz
2: Taylor and Michael Jackson yeah. holding so great fundraisers. Yeah. And
1: That's the thing. Was it um, uh, that that and it went back to Princess Diana? I was thinking, having a face like that, who was empathetic and and um, and high, so high profile. Did that help in a way to get the research done, to get these drugs through, to make, to get the therapy that was required?
3: I, I'm sure that did have a, an impact. But also it was down to activism as well. And I mean, raise uh, people raise money, but activists were really saying, we demand you've got to get this to people take things. action. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're really fortunate today to have you know really strong celebrity supporters. I mean, Christian, you've done so much as a clinician to mm-hmm. make sure this is maintained within the networks that you have. And thank you for, for what you do. And, and, yeah. uh, and our other people are constantly... Uh, lo- looking to work with us to make sure that the message doesn't get lost people like Stephen Fry Elton mm-hmm. John Beverly Knight you know incredible uh, array of people who we're very fortunate to have associated with us as patrons or celebrity supporters so keeping it in the public eye is so important uh, when Prince Harry uh, when I told Prince Harry that uh, we had such a massive increase um, in self-testing uh, he blushed um, and, uh, and he, he, again he's great and he's uh, hopefully going to be doing something for us uh, again for HIV testing week.
2: Oh, exciting. Why yeah. is this face? But yeah. I don't, I mean I I can't you know say it enough. It's such an important thing that he did and I think all the people you can you can you know add a healthy dose of cynicism to people's motivations, you know, for holding galas and whatever they want to do, but it raised an awful lot of money, it raised an awful lot of awareness and it got us arguably to where we are now, which is, you know, people with HIV being able to live normal life expectancies. There are a lot of, I think, really moving stories about, particularly in the research. When I was working, I was working out in Kenya and Uganda, and that was the time when they were looking into a group of, it was Ugandan sex workers, who were absolutely the highest risk possible for getting mm. HIV, and yet they weren't. And we couldn't work out why this was. They, they were never tunging positive. And they gave their permission to have blood taken and have cells taken and researched. And they have a mutation in a certain cell receptor that meant HIV couldn't bind to their CD4 cells. And from, you know, this was a sort of a milestone, I think, in developing Mm -hmm. new therapies. We then realized, right, if we develop a drug that does the same thing, that blocks that receptor we might be able to stop HIV binding. Um, it didn't stop, unfortunately, people becoming positive quite in those terms, but it developed a whole new mm. you know, range of medications. And that was one of those extraordinary stories of a really sort of dispossessed and stigmatized minority group of, you know, Ugandan sex workers, the bottom rung of the bottom rung, suddenly actually was sort of played a part in saving lives. Mm. It was a wonderful story. Um,
1: Can I ask... And this might put a downer on it, but are people still dying from AIDS? That's really base. I'm sorry, but it's one no, of my that's my. An my uh, are people still dying in this country from
3: AIDS? So, so there'll be about just over 200 deaths each year attributable to HIV directly, um, and but nobody needs to die of HIV or an AIDS-related illness in the UK today. It's absolutely not necessary, and the the reason that there are those deaths is because. People are diagnosed late, often when they're very sick, um, and often it's um, population groups that people you wouldn't associate with HIV, as Christian was saying earlier. So, heterosexual men and women, m- m- maybe, you know. Uh, somebody who lives in a rural community um, who wouldn't even think they've been at risk but had a sexual partner many years ago who perhaps ha- had a sexual partner who was living with HIV, infected them um, and and uh, then they've been living with HIV for 10, 15 years suddenly become very sick um, often still get... PCP and pneumonia, um, and then their lungs give up on them and they unfortunately die. So, yes, there are still uh, deaths from uh, AIDS in the UK. Globally, still about a million people die of AIDS every year. Again, people don't need to die of HIV anymore because we have all of the drugs available to make sure that people can uh, have their HIV treated.
2: It's not a crass question at all, it's a very important question yeah. because it is. There are still people dying, and those people don't need to be dying. Mm. And it's those sort of, it's, it's my lot, you know, it's my profession often who, GPs, whoever it might be, you know, dismissing them because they just don't fit the demographic in their view, you know, and, and oh, I'm sure you're fine, take some antibiotics, off you go. Mm. And also probably a degree of, of, of fear, perhaps, you know, deep down. And I suspect a lot of people deep down, it's not that much of a surprise. It's a shock, but it's not necessarily a surprise. I think there's a difference, but there's a sort of, I'm going to put this off as long as I can because it's better. Yes, than knowing, but it's not better
3: to not know. The ostrich tendency kicks in sometimes. Yeah, people would. uh, I mean, certainly in the early days when there was no no treatment, lots of people did that. I'd I'd rather not know. I'd rather not know because of I just want to carry on living my life um, without that um, the burden of knowing I'm HIV. Even if I fear it, that is easier to bear than the burden of knowing. I mean, one of the the, the, the challenges that we've, we've got today is that that older generation of people with HIV, many of whom were thought they had very uh, little time to live, mm. um, they're often living in poverty because they' cash in their pensions. Um, uh, they're they're isolated Um, many of them will have PTSD because of the trauma of thinking they were going to die with this stigmatised condition and now they're trying to chart the course of 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 living but growing old um, with HIV. And so that's a a group that that at Terrence Higgins Trust, we need to do more to make sure that we're supporting that demographic of people because Mm. many people are doing really well with HIV today, but there is a group of people that actually are really struggling with HIV. and It's making sure all of that support is still there Um, and that's much harder um, because funding from the state is reduced quite significantly and we need to make sure that we are Uh, raising the funds to continue the vital support and often it's mental health issues that people are facing uh, to enable them to not just live well. I just don't want to live well. I want to thrive. Mm. Um, And it's about making sure we've got the ability to thrive with HIV rather than just to to do good. HIV has...
2: You know, inspired I think a lot of art and, and, and movements and plays and film and, and all sorts of things um, I don't know if any of you saw it this might be too dated there was a, a pair of plays called The Inheritance did you see The Inheritance? I did
3: see The Inheritance
2: the most extraordinary, moving, heartbreaking, but warm and, and inspiring play I think I've ever seen. If you ever get a chance to see The Inheritance, it's on in New York at the moment and it will come back and it will come back and it will come back. But there have been a lot of uh, pieces of art, movies, haven't there, um, inspired by HIV that might be a good way for people who don't aren't really sure or think they're not infected, actually, not affected, not infected, but affected by it, to be introduced gently to HIV, the subject. What do you think? Can yeah, I mean, part? I think
3: I think that the the arts world has done a, a huge amount to um, respond uh, to the HIV epidemic. Um, uh, I mean, The Inheritance, the producer, Sonia Friedman, has been a long term supporter of Terence Siggins Trust and that they did a gala performance on World AIDS Day yeah. uh, for us. Um, and I sat there, and the end of the first act, I oh was God. in pieces. Uh, I had to get on the stage at the end of the second act. Thank goodness it wasn't the end of the first act. Uh, but uh, she says that she's so passionate about HIV because so many of her friends were dying uh, back in the 1980s and early 1990s. Mm. And so she started to fundraise. And that's how she got associated. And that's why The Inheritance was such an important play for her to produce. So there are so many examples of that. It's a play, for those you who haven't seen it, sort of about
2: remembering that we got here today, essentially because of people who've gone before and lives that have been lost in a very tragic and short way, and actually, you know, we're so quick to sort of dismiss and squabble and be discontented with our lots now. But that sort of remembrance of things past and those that have gone before that have got us to actually a really golden situation now, yeah. we have to agree, compared to 20, 30 years ago, we mustn't forget that.
1: It is a golden situation, but can I go back to mm. my point earlier? Is just how do you engage people now with the thought of HIV or the knowledge and the facts about HIV when people think it's all right, they've cured it.
3: So uh, that's about making sure there are the the campaigns that are um, encouraging people to get to know about HIV really importantly, uh, is mandatory relationships and sex education. That is so important. Uh, and that's going to be mandatory in schools in England, all schools in England, uh, in uh, September of 2020. There's a number of schools who are piloting a curriculum. Um, there are so many uh, y- young people who uh, have no knowledge of uh, sex- good sexual health through the school system. Mm. And that's actually, I think, it's a right a child yeah. has uh, yeah. to have um, good quality relationships and sex education in schools, um, the old curriculum was 20 years old. You know, dating apps have come in since then. Yeah. Um, and, you know, th- there's nothing talked about consent. Um, you know, very little about sexual health. Very little, if nothing, about HIV. That has to change. Yeah. And so that's where, why you'll get um, people then saying, actually, well, I, I understand now that that I have um, a responsibility to look after my sexual health. Mm. Um, and actually, I'm empowered to look after my sexual health.
1: Mm. Um, what was that A phrase that we... Oh, we coined an in an one of the child an an informed child It's a vulnerable child, a vulnerable yeah, child.
2: Completely,
1: completely. and I I love that phrase. I keep saying it like a mantra. <laughs> <laughs> it's one, one thing I yes, say. Boys, when I'm, I'm going to talk to you now about this, right? Well, when I've gone on about
2: you know sex education, I I did something about. I said, oh, I think children should be taught about porn. I think I said it on the right yeah. stuff, and it caused an absolute you know hoo-ha amongst middle yeah. England who are all up in arms saying I was a disgrace you should be locked away and um and that's where i sort of coined that thing if you think your child isn't watching porn you're Deluded, as a of course parent, they are. you know. Course um, so. And I said, and to leave your child uninformed is to leave them vulnerable mm. to, to whatever they see. And I, and I based that on my. I remember at school we found an old copy of Razzle in the bushes. It was Razzle or whatever they were called. I can't remember. Not really my sort of thing, but there we go. There it was. And I, I just remember I'd never seen anything like this before, and I was so horrified, probably for two reasons. <laughs> One, <laughs> it, it really, really wasn't my thing. <laughs> but two, that the, the, these people were doing this. It was just you know, I was a naive little public school boy, you know, angelic and blonde and sweet and innocent and pure how I've changed <laughs> but it was I remember being I, I won't say damaged but I've never forgotten the distress of when I saw that and that—and that's what I sort of mean by that mm. don't you know don't think that I was necessarily going to run off and copy what I saw I was personally distressed that this even existed because no one had told me about it and it was very shocking that's and why. if
3: that's not um, happening at home then it's a responsibility of the state to make sure that's happening with the educational system mm.
0: Mm.
1: No, I completely agree. But it's I taken
2: know. such a fight to get us. It's happening in 2020. Yeah. It's like, oh, how long yeah. do we have 2020 before we're actually teaching kids about this sort of thing? Yeah. It's sort of shameful, isn't it? I mean, there are still a lot of myths, aren't there, around HIV yes. that exist. Yes. I mean, let's, let's should we test, Alex? This is really sure. unfair. Okay. Please but please don't. No, come on, no, this will no, be fun. Don't do it
1: to me. So, no, because I actually did some research before I got oh, here. Oh, so you're okay. But cured. I had to do some research. So go on, ask me.
2: I mean, can we cure HIV? No. correct Correct. but can we manage it comfortably
1: we can manage it so in Ian's case you got that thing where you thought you got the diagnosis thought you had eight years possibly tops and you've now lived with the diagnosis for
3: 23 years and got a normal life expectancy do you catch it from
2: loos and towels
1: no I know this (laughs) How, how do you catch it I would have thought it's from having unprotected sex still isn't it Is that mainly? that mainly? That's the main reason, yeah. I mean, the blood transfusions, those terrible things that we heard of in the 80s, that's long gone. Not not anymore, thank goodness. Uh,
3: But uh, indirect drug drug users can also uh, contract HIV.
1: Of course, yes. Needle stick
2: injuries, very, very rarely. Very very rarely. I haven't actually seen anyone catch it that way. Um, What about uh, pregnancy? Can you have babies if you are HIV positive?
1: I know this only because I researched it, but it was one of the things that I asked.
2: Well, on Google,
1: <laughs> I asked Dr Google, um, because I didn't realise, but you can, can't you? And how is that
3: possible? So, uh, you go on medication, you have an undetectable viral load, you can't transmit the virus, you can't transmit the virus to your unborn baby, and there's still a concern about breast milk Um, and so it's advised for uh, women uh, with HIV not to breastfeed but you can have a baby without them being HIV positive. A
2: healthy HIV negative baby yeah absolutely you can Um, and there's no you know there's still a lot of I think issues about oh you're pregnant you've got HIV that's terribly irresponsible bollocks to that you know absolute nonsense. Um, What are the other common myths? Kissing, sharing cutlery, sharing food, all of that thing. Spitting. That's not how HIV is transmitted. Um, we've done the insurance one. What yeah. other common myths do you come across? Here?
3: Uh, I think they're the key ones, I think. yeah, the, It's uh, those, uh, you, you cannot transmit the virus through normal everyday life. Um, you know, it's mainly sexual contact with somebody who's got a detectable viral load. Yeah, most
2: um, importantly, the most profound thing, I think, the change that's happened is yeah. that if you're on treatment with an undetectable viral load, you are no longer going to pass it on. And that is yeah. huge. That's news. huge. <laughs> that's huge. That's massive. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. and that's where the hiv commission comes in which you know is the idea that by 2030 there should be no more hiv infections and that will be based on that idea that you're on treatment that's working you shouldn't be passing it on yeah.
1: If you think from 1980, when was the first discovered? Ish. Oh, it, ish. Yeah, it was the end of yeah. discoveries. Terry Higgins wasn't? died was, in
3: 1982. Right. One of the First people in the UK.
1: Yeah. So from that time to 2030, yeah. Yeah, that's quite a short spell. I mean, could you put it in perspective, please? and um, perspective? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Yeah. Well, my cancer's teeth been around again.
2: forever, yes. and we're still.
1: We're still trying to figure that one out. We're still
2: trying to figure that yeah. one out. Most, you know, the cold, we can't cure. Yeah. You know, we're rubbish with that. So. Most viruses we're pretty crap with in medicine, actually, um, to be fair. HIV, I think, is what the, the main exception. Although we still can't cure it, the way that we can manage it is, is, is profoundly different from most other viruses. You know, we struggle away with the flu, feeling really sorry for ourselves. Not the case with HIV anymore. So that, I hope, gives it some perspective. I can't think of any more profound questions <laughs> to ask. Ian, can you? I think that's about it for second opinion. Alex, as always, thank you and a huge thank you to my very special guest Ian Green from the Terence Higgins Trust um, for joining us today and sharing your own personal experience as Pleasure. well as the work of THT. Don't forget you can get in touch with us by emailing surgery at thepodcastworks.com You could even if you would enjoyed this podcast give a donation to THT. How do they do that Ian? Uh,
3: go on to Terence Higgins Trust website um, and uh, there's a click and you can make a donation there. And you can even do an HIV test. You can do it, via get an HIV test. test by the home self-testing kits. Yeah. So
2: you can even message me on Twitter if you've got questions about HIV, if you just want to have a go at me, have a go at me on Twitter. I can take it. Feel free. Give us a five star rating if you enjoyed it. Share the podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Hold
0: up.